the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today let's chat with Sandy Main. Now, Sandy has a unique experience or a set of unique experiences on helicopters from Vietnam to Papua New Guinea and then with the Royal Malaysian Air Force. He did two tours with the United Nations on helicopters. He was also involved with the introduction of the Black Hawk into the Australian Army. He finally flew choppers commercially. Sandy Main joined the RAAF as a pilot in 1968 and was posted to fly Iroquois or Hueys at 5 Squadron. In 1969, he was posted to 9 Squadron Vietnam, flying mostly gunships. Vietnam was a big and exciting challenge. His next challenge was different, and in Papua New Guinea, choppering bridge material. Papua New Guinea is renowned for very difficult terrain to fly in. These were the start of a long career in helicopters. You listen to Sandy as he tells you about the challenging, exciting and sometimes dangerous life of a chopper pilot. Well, here we are, another great representative of the Royal Australian Air Force. Good afternoon or good morning or whatever time it is. Hello, Sandy. How are you? I'm very, very well, thanks, Gareth. Great to meet you. You as well, my friend. You almost didn't make it into the Air Force, didn't you? Do you know at the age of 17 you go up in a plane and you got airsick? Ah, it goes back earlier than that. Uh, At risk of giving you a long story, um, I've always been interested in flying as a little kid, but uh, back in Perth, where I come from, uh, there wasn't much aviation back just after World War II, with the exception of an ex-mosquito pilot called Jimmy Woods and he ran two Avro Ansons between Perth and, and Rottnest. And my father had to send me back from Rottnest Island on the occasion of one holiday and uh, and I got booked on Woods Airways, one of these two Avro Ansons, and Jimmy Woods said, do you want to come up the front? And, you know, there's no other passengers. So I said, well, would I? Yeah, sure. So I jumped in this thing and we flew off to Perth. Perth's all of about 20 nautical miles as the crow flies, about about 15 minutes even in an Anson. But what Captain Woods didn't tell me was I had to wind the gear up and down. And I remember I remember sitting in the co-pilot seat, winding this damn handle about 140 times, by which stage we were halfway to Perth. And then he said, OK, you can wind it down again now. And <laughs> And that, that almost killed me for flying straight away because when we got to Perth Airport, I was totally euchred, you know. And then the, then the 17-year-old incident came up when I paid five quid, I think it was, to the Aero Club and went up in a chipmunk with a young kid who was just getting his hours up, I now realise, and did the whole half hour doing aerobatics. I got violently airsick and I thought, well, that's it. I won't be able to. Uh, I won't be able to fly. You know, give give aviation away, and I and I I did give it away for another seven years, and then. Didn't your father give you some 
interesting advice. Uh, he made an historical allusion. He said, look, Lord, he, he made reference to Lord Nelson. No, um, no, no, no. This was this was the father of my, my girlfriend that I was taking out. She was a, a hostie with McRobinson Miller Airlines. You might remember the name, uh, the, the local West Australian airline. Yeah. And uh, he sort of warned me off his daughter. He said, you haven't got a proper job. He said, you're messing around just doing this and that, you know. You have no career. Yeah, you can't take my daughter out if you don't get a proper job. And I said, well, I've always wanted to fly, but I get air sick. And he said, air sick? He said, you just get on with it. He said, Lord Nelson was seasick his entire life. He said, look what happened to him. So I, so I, started, I started taking flying lessons, and uh, I didn't see him for about three or four months. And I still kept taking his daughter out. And then when I saw him next time, he said... Uh, well, what are you doing about flying? I said, I'm taking flying lessons. And he said, flying lessons? Who are you taking flying lessons with? And I said, oh, the Aero Club. He said, bloody Aero Club? He said, they don't know anything about flying. If you want to learn to fly, you've got to join the Air Force. So I did. <laughs> oh, there you did, did you end up marrying that girl? No, I didn't. But didn't. <laughs> uh, but I, after I got warned off her, I, uh, I, I met the father years later when I was a flight lieutenant in the Air Force and I said how's Lynn going, the daughter you know? and he, he held his head in his hands and he said oh she married a Ukrainian welder who was a drunk and a wife beater, she should have kept with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there you go you, uh, you've uh, flew helicopters in Vietnam and PNG and then you uh, were in the Royal Malaysian Air Force. How did you get in the Royal Malaysian Air Force? Well, the straight answer is I don't know. I was instructing on windshields when I came back from Vietnam, um, and I thought this is not too good. I'm going backwards, you know. I'm going back to the aircraft I learned to fly on. But I had two great years on the windshield. Wonderful old trainer, amazing aircraft. At the yep. en end of that, they said, "Oh, you're off to Malaysia," and I thought, "Wow, what am I going to be flying in Malaysia?" They said, no, you're going to be instructing the Malaysians. And I thought it was going to be on a jet over at, at, uh, on the north coast of Malaysia. When I got to Malaysia, I found out there's a little piston engine trainer, the world's smallest aeroplane, I think, called, <laughs> called, the, called the Bulldog. And I said, what have I done to deserve this? Anyway, I flew this thing for two and a half years. I called it the Bull Ant because it was so small. Um... And that's what happened. I was, I was on loan to the RMAF. They were very short of instructors and that. Okay. that well, that makes sense because uh, I thought, how did he end up in the Royal Malaysian Air Force? Yeah. You, when actually did you join? Uh, not the Malaysian Air Force, the Australian Air Force. Uh, October 66. 66. Yeah. It seems, it seems to be a magic year for people that I've been talking to about. That's the year they joined and that was right in the middle of uh, our involvement in Vietnam, then of course you ended up being posted to Vietnam, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Uh, when we graduated over at Pierce on the Vampire, um, I and Jack Lynch and all the guys on my course uh, you know, were po posted here or there, but some of us were... Uh, actually, I was posted to Caribous, but they cancelled the Caribou course. They said you can go to Hercules or helicopters, and I thought, what a hell of a choice, you know. And I, I, I opted for helicopters. I thought, well, I've flown a propeller aircraft and a jet. I might as well learn to fly a helicopter. 
But what I didn't count on was the big bungee cord. Once you've been on helicopters, you 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 glued to them forever. <laughs> really? Is that are they that good? Well, I don't know what it is, but you. I think you're viewed as a bit of a peculiarity in the flying world, you know. A few of our guys have come off choppers and gone to fighters and some have gone to quarters and that, but uh, the helicopter backgrounds always look at a bit askance, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a good machine for teaching you about how thin the air is, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least the helicopter to any jet pilot uh, who may look down on the helicopter pilot Yes, some jets can hover, some jets can take off vertically, but the helicopter can do it all and do it with ease. So yeah. here's the helicopter pilot. So you get to Vietnam, you've been posted now to helicopters. Yeah. How did you end up flying gunships and what was that like? Um, well, I just got sort of sidetracked uh, about third of the way through my year in Vietnam. They just said, yeah, you're going to go on to gunships. So, I don't know why they chose me, but I did, and, I, and about two-thirds of the time I flew in Vietnam was on gunships, the rest of the time flying slicks, you know, doing medevacs and stuff like that. Um, and I'd have to say, uh, gunships, probably about 70 or 80 percent pretty, pretty boring work, believe it or not, just patrolling and that, but the other 20 percent was anything but. It was... Uh, was quite exciting at times. In fact, I, some some military wit years ago said, "There's nothing quite so invigorates one's interest in continued living like being shot at," and that's quite true. I can yeah. vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the twenty percent. Uh, some obviously they were they were hot missions that you were out on. Uh, what, what was the situation? Gen generally, uh, our SAS up there were in small patrols around the jungle and we would insert them during the day and they could sort of go to ground and keep quiet for a, a week or so just watching what was going on with the enemy forces. Um, they didn't seek to get involved with the enemy or, or you know, get involved in a firefight with them at all. It was all intelligence gathering. But occasionally we put one of these patrols in and it would we call it going hot. They'd be discovered by the, the bad guys and then uh, it was pretty interesting because we'd have to send a chopper in to winch these guys out normally and the gunships would go in and, and suppress the bad guys so the, so the slick could get out with the, with the patrol on board. Uh, we had one, one particularly uh, exciting incident one night when a fellow West Australian friend of mine, Bill Robertson, got called out at nine o'clock at night uh, and I was the gunship <coughs> flight leader for the day. It was actually my first day as gunship flight leader and uh, I went back after the day's flying and went into the bar and had four or five beers and then the, the, the patrol went hot and Bill Robertson got sent out in his single aircraft to get these guys out. And the CO came up to me and said, get back on the gunship and get out and give him give him cover, you know. And I said, well, sir, I've had four or five beers. And he said, he said I couldn't care less how much beer you had. Get back and get in and do it. <laughs> it's the only time in my life I've ever flown with a few beers on board. But that was that was pretty exciting. Uh, Bill got a DFC for winching these guys out. And uh, it, was, it was certainly quite exciting. A lot of green tracer flying around which is Chinese Communist Tracer. 
so yeah, Bill Ernie's gone for sure. Yeah, w- was it not the the pattern that when you went out on a gunship, it, there was always two of you and sometimes three? Correct. Yes, we were two aircraft called a light fire team uh, or a heavy fire team, which was three. We, we used a heavy fire team where we we had a protracted engagement because the uh, even though we carried what fourteen thousand rounds of ammo on a gunship, you could go through it in less than a minute. You know that you could fire three second bursts, and each burst was five thousand rounds or something like that. Yeah. So we we chewed through the ammo. So if it was a protracted engagement, we'd have to send one aircraft back and bring another one on and rotate them around to uh, to keep up the rate of fire. Um. I keep, just to let you know, if you're listening right now, you may hear a bit of background noise. Uh, maybe one of you still has your mobile phone turned on because I'm getting interference from that. But moving moving into uh, the, the gunship, uh, what's the hairiest, the hairiest situation that you encountered? Uh, I think it was probably that night, Gareth. That was, uh, that, that was a near thing for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I had to put down suppressive fire right next to uh, Bill's aircraft. In fact, at one stage he said, move the fire in closer to my aircraft. All I could see of his aircraft was the red anti-collision light on top of the engine exhaust. All the other lights were off. And there was right. a, as black as pitch, so it was very hard to judge the azimuth of you know, where the, the ammo was going. And he said, "Move, move your gunfire in closer," and uh, which I did, and the rockets as well. And it turned out next day there was some minor, very minor shrapnel damage on the tail boom of his aircraft from from my rockets. Uh, so that's how close we were. It's quite hairy. You uh, no doubt formed pretty close relationships with the other air personnel while you were there. Oh, very, very close. Yeah. Um, You've had Jack Lynch on before, and uh, he and I flew quite a bit together, and Bob Chalor and uh, all members of my pilot's course, basically, yeah. And and has that relationship stayed strong over the years because of your relationship in the RAAF? Oh, I think so, Gareth, yeah. 64 courses very well glued together. We still are, in fact. Uh, a lot of other pilots, of course, are just sort of dispersed. They go to airlines or whatever, but uh, but 64 has stayed very close together. In fact, we got an invite the other day uh, from the CO over at 2FDS in Pierce. He's about to graduate number 264 pilots course. And yeah. He's given us an, all an invite to attend as double centurion pilots <laughs> yeah yeah so how many missions would you have flown while you were in vietnam uh, roughly i i can't remember the number of missions but i flew uh, just on 900 hours in total so uh the average mission would be you know 45 minutes or an hour so about 900 something like that that's uh, that's a lot of missions yeah um I know that you have had some funny but dangerous uh, encounters and experiences in your career with the RAAF. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is the Malaysian student who 
navigated himself into Thailand. What was the background to that? <laughs> that, was, that was really funny. Uh, the, the Malaysian base was at a place called Alice Star, which is right on the Thai border, and right in the northern part of, uh, of, of uh, West Malaysia, Peninsular Malaysia. And we sent this kid solo, and he went down to Ipoh and then across to some other place, his name I forget, and then he was coming back past um, our Australian base of Butterworth, where our mirages were, and Malaysian aircraft as well, and he was given the air traffic instruction, turn right onto whatever the heading was, I forget now, turn right onto this traffic avoidance purposes, and once they've been Butterworth, resume on navigation. Any experienced pilot would know what that meant. Well, he heard turn on to whatever it was, but he forgot about resume on navigation. And he just flew on, uh, flew, <laughs> flew past Alice Star because it was a bit too far away for him to see, flew <laughs> over the border, and just so happens that over the border, on the other side of the peninsula, is a place called... called I think it's called Songklar, I think, and it's a Thai air base. And this kid flew on and landed at Songklar, not noticing the fact that the ocean was on the wrong side, <laughs> landed there. And of course the Thai said, hey, on, this is a Malaysian military aircraft coming in without a diplomatic clearance. It took us <laughs> took us two weeks to get the aircraft back. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the same situation, but I, I assume a different student, uh, was on a, a windjill and uh, he shut the engine down and ended up in a poo pond or a sewerage pond? No, very nearly. That was right at the start of my, my instructing. I only, only had about, I don't know, 30, 40 hours on windjills instructing. And we did this thing called the engine failure after takeoff, or practice engine failure after takeoff. And, 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 and you mime the actions, you know, you, you turn off the magnetos and shut the fuel off and go for flap and put an emergency call out, blah, blah, blah. And to my astonishment, this kid actually t shut the magnetos off, turned the magnetos off, shut the engine down. And we hear a word about a thousand feet heading for, heading for Werribee where sewage farm. So <laughs> I, I, I got the engine going again pretty damn quickly, I can tell you. <laughs> Or rather, you would have ended up in the in the yeah, deep pool. Yeah, for sure. Um, what about flying a Mackie upside down? Oh, I did quite a bit of that. that that's uh, yeah, just standard aerobatic stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I loved the Mackie because I was sort of going backwards, you know, instructing on the windshield. Then I thought because uh, I'd, I'd done the instructor's course on the Mackie, which I hadn't flown before. I flew the Vampire as a, as a tra trainee pilot. Um, and when I did got my Mackie qualification, they said, oh, no, you're going to go to windjills. We need more windjill instructors. So I thought, oh, going backwards. So then I went to Malaysia, went to something even smaller, the Bulldog, and I thought, what am I doing wrong here? And then at the end of that, I got posted to Mackies finally. So that was two years on the Mackie, which was good fun. What's the purpose of flying the Mackie upside down? What, what, what's, what's the aim? Uh, well, no specific aim, just to see if he can fly it level upside down. Uh, it, it's all, all, all part of basic aerobatics, you know. And in one of your helicopters, was it what? Oh, it was in midwinter over Kosciuszko. What happened there? 
Oh, that was that was pretty icky, actually. Uh, we used to do snow training down south of Canberra in the middle of winter. Uh, we'd take down three or four choppers and park them at a ski lodge there and uh, go out to patrol around the, the the ski field area. And I was handing over to another guy who was, who was relieving me. I was going back to Canberra. And we were flying around the perimeter of the training area there. And we were right over Mount Kosciuszko um, and uh, at about 9,000 feet. And on board was the base commander, a group captain, and the senior medical officer, and a couple of nurses, and a few other people. And all of a sudden, we got a thing called a lock compressor store, which, uh, when a jet engine gets a surge through the compressor, and it manifests itself in a helicopter with quite violent fishtailing as the torque goes in and out. And at the same time, we had a uh, an engine chip light, and I thought. What the hell is this? You know, one, one chip light is an oil, oil contamination and the compressor stall is an airflow problem. I couldn't figure out what it was. Well, we only had about 2,000 feet beneath us and nowhere to go. Uh, so, uh, and, and no time to look at a checklist or anything. So I just said to the co-pilot, let's go for manu manual mode of the governor, which is the only thing we could do. And he flicked it over, and from a huge relief, uh, we started to get some power back again with our compressor stall. And we ended up flying at about 20 miles to the southwest, and sort of flopped into a mud patch at a place called Tom Grogan. Now that that was pretty close. If we hadn't managed to get it going, I think we'd have, we wouldn't be here. That that aircraft, by the way, is in the Port Perry RSL. Would you believe to, to this day? So it's not. Not suitable for flying anymore, is that what no, you're saying? Not, not anymore. I remember it well. A2-489, yeah. 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 Funny how those numbers stay with you uh, right through your life. Yeah. What is a, a Puma? You were a super Puma. A uh, big French machine. Uh, when I left the Air Force, I went flying off oil rigs off the northwest coast, uh, initially flying Bell 212s and 412s, which are tw twin Hueys. And then a, the, the big bell, the 214ST, which is an absolute pig of an aircraft. We, we lost three of those through mechanical failures. Uh, fortunately, not with me on board. Uh, but did, didn't your engine fail on one of them? Uh, on the Puma. Yeah. My first flight as captain, uh, the number two engine ran back to idle. I was about two-thirds two of the way out to a rig and sitting on my hands, the autopilot was flying. And number two just went, boo. I thought, oh, <laughs> flew, flew back to the island where our instructor was. And he came running out and said, what have you done? He said, these things never fail. I said, well, this one just did. <laughs> so, did they find the solution to why it failed? Well, it was a governor malfunction, the electronic fuel control, control unit. Yeah. So what, what's the crossover? I mean, all right, you were flying... Uh, super Pumas out to oil rigs, and that was post Air Force. Yeah. What was what year did you actually retire from the Air Force? Uh, 1987. Yeah. 1987. So while in the Air Force, uh, is it that when you were involved with uh, with Nine Squadron and other activities with search and rescue in helicopters? Yeah. Oh, yes, quite a bit of that. Um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Um, 
you know, we did, we did a flood rescue out of Carnarvon Gorge where people were trapped in a the flood there. Uh, I think I mentioned the Ringo. They were, I had to go out to a submarine one day with a bloke with a burst appendix and get him off in a howling gale, which was pretty interesting, interesting work. Yeah, uh, just stop stop there. I'd like to hear that story because I'm thinking uh, howling wind, submarine, not a very large craft, tossing no. and turning in, in the water, the helicopter above with wind as well. Uh, that that sounds hairy. Uh, it wasn't so much hairy, it was sort of strange uh, because the sub was going one way, the sea was going another way, the wind was going another way, and I had to hover into wind and the sub was still moving, he wasn't just lying in the water. And I ended up sort of going sideways into wind, if you, if you can imagine that, and winching this poor guy up in a Stokes litter. Uh, he was on the hull of the submarine uh, in a different sort of litter, and they had to transfer him across to our litter. Um, and the waves were washing over, and these five or six guys hanging onto him. So it was, yeah, it was very uncomfortable for him he's in a lot of pain and that so how what is the relationship then between you the the pilot yeah. and was the load master or the person that's actually operating the winch what's the communication like then in such circumstances uh, he's giving giving me guidance as to how i'm going hovering because the sub's not not very big you're looking down the side of the hull you know and you need to have some sort of reference to hold the hover over the over the sub with, with water washing over it. Uh, you lo keep losing the reference. So that the crewman who's operating the winch will say, oh, "You need to come, you know, come back a meter, go right a meter, or whatever." And, uh, and that's how you do it. But uh, yeah, quite a tricky operation in that sort of weather. And how many how many feet or meters are you off the the ocean's surface uh, well in that case we were up reasonably high probably 80 feet something like that because too close uh, the rotor washer blow the guys off the off the hull uh, <clears throat> so know, there's a lot, lot to take into consideration quite a lot yeah quite a lot yeah that almost that almost sounds forgive me for saying more dangerous or more risky than flying gunships in Vietnam uh, more challenging, Gareth. Yeah, in terms of terms of uh, uh, of uh, accuracy and that. Yeah, more challenging. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's more dangerous, but yeah, definitely Did, challenging. Didn't you also get helicopters involved in the cyclone relief in Tonga? Uh, yes, we did. That was a a, a highly uh, uh, interesting operation. That the, the cyclone did really messed the place up. The capital city, Nukualofa, is a idyllic South Pacific paradise. When we got there, the, the only hotel was co completely trashed. You know, the mattresses were blown out of the hotel rooms into the pool and the, a lot of people badly hurt with flying galvanised iron and stuff. And uh, there's actually 200 islands in the in nation of Tonga, spread into three groups spread over about yeah, about 150 miles, I guess. Yeah. And we had, we only had, I think, two or three choppers there. We were island hopping all the time, picking people up with, with the most terrible wounds from flying glass and galvanised iron and stuff. 
And was the cyclone still in evidence while you were undertaking this task, or had it gone? No, it had gone, and we got called out, you know, afterwards. And uh, yeah, we had yeah, we had two two choppers over there. Two Hercs took us over, and uh, we operated there for probably probably a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, a long time. Mm. But very rewarding work. Yeah. So the whole rescue notion is is. The, again, the training provided by the Royal Australian Air Force has enabled you and people like you to undertake those kinds of activities in the circumstances that you've mentioned. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the RAF training is superb. You know, when you're doing it, you wonder why the hell you're going through this particular exercise or whatever. But sooner or later, you're probably going to need it. And uh, it's certainly been needed in my case several times. So I've been very grateful for the the degree of tr- quality of training we've had. Yeah, yeah. So your your exercise in Tonga, was that while you were with 9 Squadron at Amberley? Yes, it was. Towards the end of my time there, I did two and a half years as the EXO there, uh, 81 to 83. A uh, very turbulent time because half the squadron got shipped off to the Middle East again uh, for peacekeeping duties and... Uh, um, but yeah, at the, the, the end, end, end of that, I was the temporary CO for a while because they pulled, I think Spurge went up the Middle East and then T.C. Wilson came back and I was sort of filling the hole for a while. Then I got posted down to Canberra to a, to a ground job to uh, write the request for tender for what became the Black Hawk. So that was interesting. Oh, you're, invo- you're involved in preparing to get that very much so yeah yeah I, I wrote the the request for tender which turned out to be a document about an inch and a half thick yeah that, that was hard work but at the end of that I got sent back to the Middle East myself for, for the second time <laughs> so you you did two tours with the United Nations what was what it was involved there the first one was UNF2 based in Ismailia on the Suez Canal is that after Yom Kippur, the six-day war between Israel and... Correct. Yeah, right. That's right. Uh, but the but the agreement between Begin of Israel and Sadat of Egypt happened in uh, 1979, I think. That and, was from Camp David Accords. Correct. And, yeah. uh, and, and so Unit 2 got wound up. And Ringo and I were up there together. He was the CO, I was the XO. And uh, we we wound the place up, you know. He uh, he left uh, about two weeks before me, and I, I did the final two, two weeks to wind it up. It's a, some very funny things happened in the last two weeks, I tell you. <laughs> such as such as then. Well, well, one of the other contingents there was were the Canadians. They had three buffaloes. The buffaloes are turboprop transport, a bit like a caribou, but with turboprop engines, and. Um, at the end of it, they had their wind-up party. We got invited to it, and bearing in mind I was a temporary CO, Ringo had gone. As we were walking out from this party, I had a group of boggies with me, junior pilots, and we walked past a door in the Canadian complex, and on the door was this beautiful plaque with a maple leaf flag on it, and it had written on it, quiet, court-martial in progress. I, I said to one of the boggies as we walked out, I said, I wouldn't make a bad souvenir of that. I was just m- m- making a casual remark, you know. Next morning I walked into my office 
And there's the plaque, but unfortunately it's still attached to the door because they couldn't get it off the door, so they stole the door as well. <laughs> yes, uh, interesting experiences while you're in the Air Force. You're still in the Air Force, and weren't you involved in, in the early 80s, 1982 or thereabouts, with uh, some campers that were marooned? That was in Carnarvon Gorge. They, yeah, there was about 100 or so of them. And they, they had some heavy rainfall and the, the gorge flooded. It cut off the, the road to get out of the place. It's a very, very pretty, craggy area. Um, and these people were in a spot of bother. They were running out of food and they couldn't get out, the medical care and what have you. So we took one aircraft up there and brought these people out by vertical lift, you know, just loading them up and pulling them out over the trees and putting them on the road outside the gorge. And that... That was quite an interesting operation. How many, if you said there were about 100, there's only one, one chopper. That, that's a lot of lifting, isn't it? Uh, well, it is, um, but I did something a bit naughty, actually, which the Air Force didn't know about at the time. Um, we, we thought that as the fuel burned down, the, you know, the weight got less. I thought, why don't we take the seats out and just put people on the floor and put a cargo strap around them? So at the end of it, we were pulling out probably... 12 or 14 people, women and kids and that, and uh, managed to get it done. We had some help from the uh, the Queensland government squirrel, a little helicopter, five-seater thing. Yep. He, he was taking some out too. But yeah, that was... That was, a, that was you, you said you took the seats out. Yep. What did you do with the seats? Throw them out of the chopper? No, we just put them on the ground and just loaded them up again later when we left. Yeah. Oh, so the F, that's why the Air Force never knew about it, because you brought a chopper back that still had the seats in it. That's correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not supposed to do that. Everybody's <laughs> supposed to have a seat with with a seat belt, you know. But <laughs> when you're running out of fuel, you have to be a bit inventive. <laughs> oh, the, the imagination and uh, lateral thinking of the Australian defence personnel never ceases to amaze me, particularly, <laughs> particularly in the Air Force. Um, uh you took till 1987 before you resigned. What was it? You thought you'd done enough, or why? Why did you decide to leave in '87? Uh, well, in '87, I was a, a four-year wing commander, and I thought, now where do we go from here? I'm kind of you know, stamped as a helicopter guy. I thought, where do I go from here? I made a few inquiries, and they said, well, you're probably going to get another stripe. And I said, well, what's going to happen then? They said, oh, you'll be back in the Air Force office. So I thought pushing papers around, you know, and, you know, I, 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 I thought I've got a, a good 10 years left in me flying. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want to be some old guy in a blue uniform in the Air Force office who used to fly helicopters, which the Air Force didn't have anymore, you know. So uh, I made a bit of a mistake because Angus Houston was exactly the same and he made Air Chief Marshal. But anyway, <laughs> that's a different story. Yeah, it could have been an entirely different Air Force if you'd ended up Air Chief Marshal. I don't think that would have happened, Gareth. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, not quite cooth enough. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I some, to what extent do you think that might be a weakness? Uh, let's just stay with the RAAF, that people of great experience are ended up promoted into an office and that experience then is lost in being shared with those up-and-coming pilots. Yes, I think that's a pity. Um, it depends how much you want to stay being a pilot. 
because you know military force has to keep its, its fighting people young and once you get to about half colonel rank you know you're very much going into the higher echelons and paperwork and policy and stuff like that but if, if you if at heart a born pilot and want to stay a pilot you've really got to leave the air force because there's, there's no flying job for you but but couldn't yeah okay you can't be a jet pilot a fighter pilot when you're, I don't know, 40, 30, 50, whatever. But you still can instruct, can't you not? Uh, well, yes, you can. Uh, but once again, once once you make a wing commander, you're normally out of that, that area. You know, you're normally in a command post and uh, doing more overseeing and planning and that than you are actual flying. I, I did a lot of time instructing. I, I did four straight tours. Um, but it's a uh, it's something you have to be very dedicated to. If you're not dedicated to it, you're not being fair to the student. So uh, by the time I've you know, done, I, I did 18 of my 20 and a bit years flying in the air force. I was lucky. A lot of guys only get 12 or 14 years. Um, but at the end of it, I was pretty tired of instructing. You know, you, you've got to be very dedicated. Yeah. So what did you do? Post RAAF. Well, as a, well, I, I, I had a, a nearly one year with the infamous National Safety Council of Victoria. You might not remember the incident, but there was a bloke down in Victoria who wanted to form a coast guard, and he borrowed huge amounts of money from the banks and bought jets and submarines and helicopters and God knows what, and got a lot of mil military people he employed until he got sprung because he couldn't do the organization wasn't earning him any money and finally the banks wanted their money money back and uh, he got sprung and we all lost our jobs that was a that was a really weird year i had down at Gather airport sitting in a beautiful office with a computer and and you know aircraft in the hangar he wanted me to go fly he came up one day and said have you done any flying i said well no john i haven't he said why not i said well I haven't been given any tasks, no, nothing to do. He said, doesn't matter. He said, just go flying. I said, well, just go, just go drill holes in the sky for nothing. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> what is your most, if you had to pick one, what is your most cherished memory being with the RAAF? Oh, look, there's so many. There's so many. Uh, most cherished memory. Probably getting my wings, I think, you know, getting through. Uh, that was, I, I felt like I had the world at my feet when that, that, that day happened. And uh, indeed I did, you know. I've had an absolute ball for the whole time in the Air Force. Never had a, a bad moment or a nasty moment. And uh, yeah. met, met some wonderful people, good, good friends, you know, keep them to this day. So. I, I, I've asked a couple of other people this, and so let me ask you the same question. Uh, my teenage son meets you at a party, and he said, Sandy, you're in the Air Force. I'm thinking about joining one of the defence groups. Why should I join the Air Force? What would you tell him? Because it's likely to be a lot more fun than the Navy or the Army. <laughs> Mind you, I... Mind you, I, I can't make that comment about the Navy because I've never been on board a naval ship. I had much to do, do with them, but I, had, I was in the school cadets 
at Perth Modern School in the army, uh, and I, and I, frankly, I hated it. I was only in the army at Perth Modern School because they reckoned I wasn't bright enough to be in the air force. So. Uh, Oh, Somebody made a mistake there. <laughs> yeah, they sure did. Sandy, I'm glad you joined the Air Force, by the way. Thank you. And and I no doubt all those people that you've saved would thank you, particularly the, the poor guy that had uh, an appendix problem on that submarine. He probably was glad to get off the submarine and into a helicopter. Yeah. But for, on behalf of everyone that you've helped and all the stuff that you've done, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You have a great day. Thanks, Gareth. It's been great talking to you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.